Hello and welcome to The Food Podcast, a show where personal stories are shared through the lens of food and today through the lens of vulnerability, where we learn when things go wrong to ask for help. I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson. Unsalted butter is sweet and gentle in flavor, and unlike salted butter, it gives you full control over a recipe. Salt can be added as needed. The baker is in control. But salt is a preservative, and unsalted butter must be kept frozen in order to preserve its freshness. I buy it in bulk and leave it in the freezer, so it's there whenever I need it. I learned this on Prince Edward Island one warm night in July a long time ago. Fields of yellow mustard and canola roll like Sting's fields of gold against a blue sky. I am working as a PA on a cooking show. This is just a few months after the live television chocolate balloon debacle. We had just finished a day of filming in a butter factory. It's hot, we're tired, but we still had one segment left to shoot, where the host demonstrates a clever way to dot butter onto baked dishes. The director wanted a charming backdrop for this scene, and the butter factory just wasn't cutting it. So we pile into our rented vans in search of dairy cattle, grazing in golden late afternoon summer light. We drive up and down Highway 2, past endless golden fields dotted with red barns, winding rows of fencing, past goats and sheep and llamas, but no dairy cattle. What we didn't know was that 6 p.m. is milking time on the island. And just as we are about to call it quits, we spot Holsteins, the black and white dairy cattle, grazing with golden sun on their backs. Sure you can film here, said the farmer, but hurry up, it's almost milking time. The crew quickly set up on the edge of the pasture. The host is positioned with the western sun in the background, an apple crisp on a table in front of him, and a vegetable peeler in his hand. His task is to show viewers how peeling cold butter with a vegetable peeler is an easy way to dot butter onto desserts and casseroles. But when the director yells, action, the butter melts beneath the peeler. By the time I come back from a local corner store with another cold block of butter, the cows are well on their way into the barn for milking. We pile back into the vans in search of more cows, and I nestle the block of butter inside a bag of ice. The race is on. Just as the sun begins to hover over the horizon, we find a farmer who offers up his Holsteins as a backdrop but they are grazing a mile into the back pasture. So off we go again, off-roading this time, until we find them, still laced with golden light, happily grazing on a rolling hill. We set up the scene westward, and I care for the butter still chilling in the melting bag of ice. A little girl on her bicycle appears through the cows. She's heard a local celebrity is filming at the very back of her father's farm, and she can't believe it. I pass the butter to the host. The camera begins rolling, and together we hold our breath as he lowers the grater to the butter, and it melts in his hands. The crew packs up. They are frustrated and tired and have had it with my melting butter. But the sun is hanging in, still glowing over the fields, and Holsteins stick their heads into our rented vans and lick the windshields and sniff the seats. The little girl tries to herd them on her bicycle, giggling. How could we ever duplicate this moment? I walk over to the little girl and ask her if her family has any butter in the freezer. And she smiles and asks, does it matter if it's unsalted? This episode, the second installment in a two-part series on cake disasters, is all about asking for help. We learn this from Gillian Bell, an English-Australian cake maker and private cook who travels the world making wedding cakes for couples. Gillian is also a social worker, a lover of poetry, a writer, and a keen observer of her natural surroundings. 
She's experienced disasters of all kinds, but she thinks of them more as adventures, as challenges to face. I spoke with Jillian from her home in Brisbane last week. It's a rare time of year when our seasons cross. My spring with cool evenings and warmish days unfurling with life, and her autumn days with a breeze against the tropical warmth. It's practically the same. The weather here at the moment is beautiful. It's um, autumn, which is glorious in this time, and the light is golden. Like the days are languid and soporific and dragonflies, there's dragonflies just all everywhere, dragonflies, it's like everywhere, they're diaphanous and this golden light, it's just, I love this time of year here. Jillian and I have been pen pals for the last few years, talking online and keeping in touch and exploring the idea of collaborating on something. But really, every time we spoke, I would pepper her with questions about her life as a cake maker and her curious method in which she makes her cakes. And she didn't mind. Jillian doesn't have an order form for her wedding cakes. There are no set flavors and shapes. She makes cakes inspired by the story of the couple, asking questions like, where do they come from? What is the flavor of their home? What is the flavor of their lives? Once the ingredients of their combined cake story is settled upon, Jillian forages for those ingredients. Literally, she always has secateurs in her cake-making kit. Then, at the stroke of midnight, on the day of the wedding, she begins making the cakes. And I ask her why at midnight, because the thought of it makes most of us nervous and sleepy. The world goes quiet. It goes quiet and... um... Not only do I sort of hear that, but I feel it. You know, it's like the world goes into slumber or something, and it and it becomes a magical zone for me. It's like now, now I can do my thing. So, so I stay up, and then I won't go. To, I, you know, once the cakes are in the oven and they're they're baking and so on, I'll, I'll have a cup of tea, and I usually like to sit outside under the stars doesn't matter what time of year it is, and um, and just that quiet contemplation. And then once the cakes come out of the oven, then I'll go to sleep. Once I know that they're baked and everything's okay, I'll go to sleep. And then I'll wake, you know, usually around dawn to go to the next stage. I think in order to truly understand the person who craves quiet contemplation in the middle of the night, and who has the skill to fold stories into a cake, and who makes cakes that call to her at dawn. We have to go back to Gillian's childhood in England, first in East London, then out in the country, where she would play outside in the woods with her siblings. I'm number four in the birth order, but I grew up number three, because number one, unfortunately, passed away as a baby. Gillian once told me that her parents, who had both been through the war, had seen so much death that they wanted to create life. So they did. After Jillian came four sets of twins. We just had an ordinary size house. It was just, when I say a modest, tiny house with one bathroom. You know, so we had one room for all the boys and one room for all the girls. But we, I just grew up sleeping in bunk beds that lined walls. It was like dormitory living. And we used to have a, you know, sort of line up for the bathroom and things. And there would be a timer and the water, you know, so that you could have to get everybody. Anyway, it was always people around. It was busy and so on, but um, and noisy. And my mother used to try and always make time, make sure that each of us had some little space, even if it was only as big as a postage stamp, that that was our private little space where we could have our things and nobody was allowed to breach that space. So I used to um, sort of really escape a lot of that. Well, one, because my mum was so busy with all these twins, feeding them and so on. And then my older siblings had gone off to school. So I was the sort of oldest one at home with this mob. 
So I used to just go and occupy myself. And that's when I learned to bake. I taught myself to bake while my mother was upstairs laying on the bed feeding all these babies. I'd be down helping myself in the kitchen. And then if I went out to play, it was always on the swing, singing or reading books and hiding up in trees and things. So it was it, it was an interesting, you know, sometimes reflect on this, because I, I grew up in this very large family, but I was quite a... A child that spent a lot of sol- I was a solitary child. There was a lot of solitude. I learned very early on to be very resourceful, very self-reliant, uh, a self-starter, and um, and also very much at peace with my own company. My mother would always stay up very late. She must have been exhausted, but she would stay up late until the whole house had gone to sleep because it was almost like that was her call. That's when she got some peace. She got some peace. And, and maybe, maybe I perhaps internalized that in a way that I wasn't aware of at the time. But you, you almost consciously sought out these opportunities for peace. My Aunt Sandra has a quiet studio in the front of her house where she finds opportunities for peace, a peace that breeds creativity and productivity. I've sat there with her over the years, writing and drawing and sometimes knitting. And whenever we need something, something I assume I need to run to the store and buy, she repeats the words, all that we need is here. Her studio has a magic quality There are secret drawers of art supplies and reference books and fabrics and fibers and threads all catalogued. And all that we need always is there. That idea, it has informed my approach to life. My kitchen, my closet, the stories I write, the people around me. All that I need is here. The poet, novelist, and environmentalist Wendell Berry wrote a poem about this idea. He called it, What We Need Is Here. Geese appear high over us, pass and the sky closes, abandon, as in love or sleep, holds them to their way, clear in the ancient faith. What we need is here, and we pray, not for new earth or heaven, but to be quiet in heart and in eye, clear. What we need is here. What you have, you've got enough of what you have. It's there. And so there was that re- that resourcefulness that would look at ways in which you could use objects or found things in all sorts of ways. You could be creative about that. Last week I was away with friends, two nights of rest and walks and eating. It was heaven. I was on dinner one night, and the plan was to make Otto Lenghi's za'atar salmon with tahini where greens are sautéed in an oven-proof pan and salmon is seasoned with za'atar and sumac and nestled in the greens. Then the pan is slid into a hot oven and later the greens are drizzled with the tahini sauce. It all sounded so good, but the oven was broken where we were staying. So I crammed the salmon fillets into a toaster oven and made a salad to serve on the side. And I turned the timer on the toaster oven like I was making toast. And when it dinged, the salmon was ready. Not quite as I envisioned it, but we ate the meal on our laps because everything we needed was right there. And I often think that, um, so you, you were a good problem solver. You saw ways in which you could use things in, in functionally in ways that People wouldn't normally use things. And I think really in some respects, in terms of problem solving with cakes, if I'm abroad and I'm suddenly faced with 
an oven that doesn't work or or like the other week the the oven door just fell off that you know I will I make do I I can quickly sort of because I've, I've sort of grown up doing that because we couldn't we couldn't pay to repair things or buy new things so you had to somehow make it work and I used to take particular note and pleasure in reading books where there was provisioning going on. And whenever we would play games, like if we were playing Swallows and Amazons, which is about two crews of young children who have these little wooden sailing boats on in, in a part of England and one of them has to in each of the crews has to take responsibility for the provisions and I would always take that role when we were playing the game I would be the one in charge of the provisions I loved it I loved it There's a book I used to read to my boys it's warped from water damage it probably fell into the bath and little fingers have peeled at the fraying pages. It's called Each Peach, Pear, Plum. It's an I Spy book where characters from nursery rhymes are hiding. Tom Thumb in the cupboard at Mother Hubbard's, and Mother Hubbard's rolling pin is on the table, and there's yellow wallpaper and a basket full of apples. And Tom Thumb is in an old wooden cupboard like the one in my kitchen. Then Mother Hubbard is down the cellar, and we spy Cinderella. And on it goes. The three bears rescue baby bunting. Baby bunting is safe and dry. And we all spy plum pie. Plum pie in the sun. And we all spy everyone. And that's my favorite part. A fat plum pie on a picnic blanket. And there's a teapot and cups and saucers. And as a mother, I wanted that plum pie. And I wanted all the English foods served in these little board books. Sweet homemade provisions that transported us to another place and gathered us together, and there was enough for everyone. It would just be something really modest, like a little sandwich or a little slice of cake or something, but wrap it up carefully. And it was just, and also, food for me always, always tastes so special when you eat it outside. And I think it comes from that when you drink from a flask of tea or something when you're sitting on a riverbank or something or by the seaside or something. It's just very special. And I suppose they, they were sort of our treats. That, that was our, just those lovely moments in, our, in life where it can be very simple, very humble, but it's very meaningful. And there's such pleasure you get from such simple things. We were a gang in the summertime. My sisters and our friends at the cottage along the Northumberland Strait. To the right, at the end of our crescent beach, was a granite oak crop that offered a three-pointed view of the ocean, east, west, and across the horizon to the north, where on a clear day you could see a thin strip of Prince Edward Island. We called it Big Point, and just before the point, at the tip of the crescent, driftwood would gather after storms. And there were long logs smoothed by the ocean and twisted fishing lines and traps from lobster boats and buoys and beach glass. We called this game Airplane. It had crash-landed years before. That was the unspoken story. And we spent hours playing in the wreckage, our tan feet worn by the summer sand, scrambling over the broken wings of the plane, discovering driftwood that looked just like a loaf of bread and a wedge of cheese. And that's how we would survive on the provisions tangled in the wreckage. It's the highlight. It's a bit like being on an aeroplane, you know, like the highlight is when the, <laughs> when the drinks trolley comes around or the food's coming out. Although these days it's not such a highlight. But, um, you know, it was sort of like, yes, and you're ready. So it's such a treat. I almost feel sheepish asking Jillian about disasters at this point in her story, about the pressures of making wedding cakes. And even Marianne, the coolest of cool gals, said she would never make a wedding cake because the pressure is just too high. But I feel as if we are talking about different things here. Although I'm making cakes and someone who might have ordered a cake, for me it's never been transactional. 
it's not transactional. And sometimes people might not sort of on the outside looking in understand that. That's not really what's ever motivated me. I mean, obviously, that's why I'll never be rich. But <laughs> but at the same time, it, it's, um, you know, sometimes we don't understand everything about why we do the things that we do or what motivates us to do. And sometimes that's okay. That's okay not to have answers to things. And it's one of those things that I feel very strongly about. It's quite an emotional experience for me. There's something very um, deep and profound about the act of making food for people, making something special, something that becomes part of people's lives, part of their story. It's like I've been through this thing called making their cake, that somehow I've been like stitched into the fabric of their life, this moment. And it's not about me, me, Gillian Bell. It's, it's just about a human connection and this moment and that I've been invited. I've had this privilege for this short period of time and I'm, I think about all those people's lives I've been sown into. Cooking's beautiful, but baking is something very profound for me. My emotions are very, very close to the surface. And I'm very mindful of that. Mm. I am very mindful of when I start to make people's wedding cakes about what my disposition is, where my mind is, how I'm feeling. I actually... <laughs> I actually think about good wishes, good thoughts. I I feel I I speak to the batter in their cakes. You see, now you're making me reveal all these. <laughs> Everyone's going to think, what an absolute nutter. It comes by her honestly. It's in her blood and in her bones. On my mother's side, my mother's born in England, but beyond that, they're Irish. They're Irish. Years and years ago, on one of my other adventures in life, I worked for well over a year on a dairy farm in, in Ireland. And that's when I learned how to make Irish soda bread really well. You had to make a couple of those a day. You know, it had to be fresh. The soda bread is generally in a round form and, there, and there's like a cross cut into the top of it. Well, you're cutting there to allow the fairies to get out. That's to allow the fairies to get out. So I'm sort of, <laughs> I don't know whether it's that Irish um, uh, superstitions or whatever I carry deep in my bones, but when I'm making people's wedding cake, I, I stir in wishes. I stir in good wishes. I'll, I'll sort of whisper to the cake, you know, about long life, happy life, you know, a fulfilled marriage and I hope I don't sound like I'm a creep or something, but it's almost like I want to bring as much love and care and good wishes into this cake I'm creating for this couple. You know, and I often think of that I'm there quietly doing that and that I can't help, I just think that the cake must, must taste even more special for the making of it in that way. And this is where I lean in, an open vessel ready to receive wisdom. Like the breath work I did in yoga class last week, where the instructor asked us to hold our hands open like little cups to receive anything that was coming our way. I thought about how I faced the wall when the chocolate balloons swirled around the set in the last episode. I thought about why I sweat when I think I might be in trouble. And when I think I've done something wrong, even as a woman, well into middle age. So I asked Jillian if she's ever felt this way. And I sat, hands open, ready to receive. I don't think about those things. I don't think about those things. It, it doesn't cross my mind. I, I suppose I'm not a person who dwells in those spaces. I don't know how consciously I'm doing this, but I, it's almost like I, I sort of feel that we can choose where we're going to spend our thoughts, as it were, and, and we can choose to think catastrophize. We can choose to sort of worry about really small things in life and, 
And there are much bigger things to consider. And if I was spending my time and energy worrying about those things, would I be blocking out the opportunity to have different sorts of experiences and feelings about things? I can remember as a, a child, even that you know that young child that used to go outside and hide in trees and take a little modest picnic out. I used to make challenges for myself to do things. When I think of this, that I, I there was something instinctually that I knew that that you could either live your life in fear or you could be courageous. Or something you, you you could just approach life with optimism and courage, and so I used to do things that if I felt that frightened of anything, I would make myself. It was like I would deliberately make myself uncomfortable or face my fear because I. It was almost like a way of sort of saying, "Be gone, be gone." I'm not going to entertain that sort of in my life. It to me it was limiting. I, I somehow used to think that if you felt too comfortable <laughs> it was sort of like you wouldn't challenge yourself you wouldn't be as creative because you're not you're too comfortable so why why change why to do anything different whereas I would be like oh I haven't tried that or I don't know about that and so I would just go places on my own turn up as a young woman on my own you know I would eat in restaurants on my own because people said, well, you don't do those things or you feel uncomfortable doing those things. And I used to think, oh, I'm going to do them. I'm going to do them because I don't want to feel like that. I want to feel comfortable. I want to feel what that feels like. I wonder what experience will happen. So I traveled a lot when I was young, completely on my own. I would backpack around. I, I have terrible vertigo, fear of heights, but I would force myself to climb things and um, go up in hot air balloons and jump off the tallest tower at the swimming pool when I was a child. I can remember falling through space. I just fell off the end of this sort of tower. It wasn't a dive. I just jumped. It was like I just took a death plunge over the edge of a cliff. And I can remember the absolute awful feeling of just falling through space and then hitting this water. But I did it. You know, I did it. I asked if there was an element of performance in these challenges she set for herself. Like the time I skied straight down the main run at our local ski hill to impress my sisters. It didn't work. A rope dividing the T-bar line broke my fall, snapping me like a slingshot. But despite the wind being knocked out of me, I know my intention was to impress. Nobody was giving you that much attention. (laughs) They were probably off somewhere else or being distracted by each other or or doing something. No, 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 you never, although again, although there were a lot of you, nobody was paying any attention to you. You weren't that special. (laughs) There's plenty where that came from. And and, and again, I think too, probably generational-wise, you know, I had parents who had lived through war. You know, my mother had been bombed twice their home. These weren't people that catastrophized. These weren't people that were anxious. These weren't people that made a fuss. It was sort of like you just get on with it. You know, you just got on with it. And if there were any problems, you just had to put the kettle on. Putting the kettle on is the answer to most of the world's problems. If everybody sat down, put the kettle on, we wouldn't have as much conflict in this world. It was always in our family, um, it was any good news to share or any worries or any bad news it might start, oh, mum, you know, blah, blah, blah. just a minute, I'll put the kettle on. You know, and it was sort of like it was you sat down and you gathered and somehow tea and the sound of this kettle was like a balm and it soothed. Anything could be worked out. It'll all work out. And and I suppose I carry that deeply inside of me, perhaps, you know. And that's why when, you know, I know I, I quite often when I'm talking to clients and it's often there, it's often the mothers of the bride who get the most anxious when they're thinking that I am actually making the cake on the wedding day. 
I can see them start to hyperventilate their anxiety, like, aren't you cutting it fine? What what if this happened? And people tend to, because they're anxious about it or they're worried, they feel the weight of this sort of responsibility. And I always say to them, it's all right. I would say to people, if, if, there's a conf- if there's conflict or if there's a row, like I would volunteer to be the person that you send in because I have a very high tolerance. I do not get upset if people are losing it. It doesn't worry me at all. Human emotion, strength of emotion doesn't worry me at all. And I, I can just listen to somebody, even if they're being quite um, abusive to me, that won't make me upset. It doesn't make me upset. Because so often when people are upset, we assume it's something that we have done, but it's rarely about us. It's about being human and less than perfect. And, and people have got all sorts of worries or, or all sorts of things. We, you know, we don't know what motivates this. But it, I, I see so much in us as humans. And I've traveled so much in the world. And I've worked with people from in the most traumatic moments of their lives. People who have been tortured from war. You know, people who are injured. And people have lost the grief. And, and they could be different faiths. They could be completely different experience, life experience to what I've had. But... I see so much in us that is so common to each other. You know, we have so much more in common than difference. And those differences are really very superficial differences. And we all experience tenderness and love and fear and all those. And it's just recognizing that that this at this point in time, this is how this person's feeling. For some people, any sign of, and it might, you know, it might be in their own experiences growing up, but any sign of conflict, they get very anxious about it and they want to get away from it or they want to shut it down. But I, again, I have a high, a high tolerance to that. And again, that, and that I think perhaps that whole dispositional mindset is why I don't even go there with that sort of feeling of panic. I have had experiences where things didn't go to plan, but it's more about what's happening in your head about that situation. And for me, I just, it's like, it's a challenge. It's its a challenge. I see it as a an adventure. So it's almost like I'm in a different headspace. I'm actually on an adventure. I'm part of story here. And this is, might be the next thing that's happened in this story, that this has happened, that the oven door fell off. Or when I was in New Zealand, the power went off in the middle of the night. And I'm out in the middle of nowhere on this farm. And in the background, we've got the Southern Alps, snow-covered Southern Alps. It's pitch black and just the stars. And I'm out there on my own in these sort of outbuildings. The power's gone off. The wedding cake's in the oven, and that's it. The, you know, end of wedding cake. There's hours to go for the wedding. There's plenty of time I can make this cake. But what I've got to do is start travelling in the direction of the wedding and gather ingredients and things along the way. But I can't do that until people wake up. <laughs> or shops open, or, or farmers around to be able to gather these things, or mixing bowls, or whatever I need. Anyway, that, you know. Wait, what? I have not heard this story before. I initially asked Jillian to share a cake disaster story with me for this episode, one that she had told on Season 1, Episode 8 of Dispatch to a Friend the beloved podcast she hosted with her Australian friend, the writer and photographer Annabelle Hickson. The story is about a cake disaster told so well by Gillian. In a nutshell, Gillian is in the southwest of Sweden in a little village. Birds are singing. There are beds of lupins and wildflowers stretching to the sea. You can hear the sound of the sea and the bleating of the sheep in the meadow. It's almost midsummer, the bride's favorite time of year. And strawberries are in full swing, and the hedgerows are filled with elderflowers, so you can imagine the cake story. A beautiful layered cake filled with buttercream and strawberries perfumed with elderflower cordial and the cakes that were baked just after midnight, as always. 
Two guests were meant to pick up Jillian and the carefully boxed layers of her cakes at 1.30 p.m. and deliver her to the venue on an old farm. That way she would have ample time to assemble the cake and have it ready to serve with champagne after the ceremony at 3 p.m. Well, that's when things started to turn pear-shaped. I won't give it all away. Please go and have a listen. I've put a link to the episode in the show notes. But I will say that the couple were very late picking her up, and a wedding guest should never, ever load a cake into the trunk of a car and put a KitchenAid mixer next to the cake. Jillian is still wondering how she let that happen. But it was nothing that cosmetic surgery couldn't fix. And like Marianne from part one of this series... Jillian had her emergency cake kit at hand with lots of extra buttercream. But then there was a missing cake stand, and it was supposed to be next to the table where cake and champagne would be served in less than 30 minutes. And Jillian had to go searching for it. Picture her running across fields looking for the bride's mother, owner of the cake stand. Jillian once won a Maria von Trapp lookalike contest, even though she was just wearing her normal clothes. So imagine a woman in a dress, perhaps of indigo linen, with a matching linen apron on top and a crisp white cotton collar at her neck. She is a modern, classy Maria, climbing every mountain at this point. I ran slightly wild-eyed now back to the farmhouse. I could feel panic rising, and I am no panicker. Well, I opened and closed every cupboard door in that kitchen again. The cake stand wasn't there. So I had to abandon the thought of the cake stand and come up with a plan B. It's now 2.50 p.m. That story makes me so sweaty. And I thought it was the only disaster story in her repertoire. And now Jillian is casually slipping into a story about making a cake at the stroke of midnight in New Zealand on the South Island in an outbuilding on a secluded farm five hours from the wedding. And the power has just gone out. How have I never heard this one before? And something tells me there are always small disasters, but she doesn't see them that way. They are just adventures to be folded into the story of the cake. Oh, God, God. Wait, oh, I haven't ever told you this one, Lindsay. Oh, my goodness. So I'm on the Canterbury Plain. I don't know. People know, might know New Zealand. So I'm on the South Island. So imagine the South Island. I'm sort of on the, the northeastern side. The wedding's at the bottom of the island on the southwestern side. So I have to almost traverse across the island down into a place called Queenstown. I was all packed up, ready to go at first light, drive south for a while and then sort of turn right, as it were, <laughs> across the internal of the island. But there's only some very, very small villages and farms in these some of these places these aren't there's no cities (laughs) so I knew so I as I'm driving so I knew that the first hamlet that I'm going to come to is a place called Fairley well the population of Fairley is 300 people so I just thought well I'm going to head to Fairley and when everybody wakes up and gets up and people start to go about their business I'm going to go to wherever in Fairley I think that most women will go to in the morning and then I just started to ask people I said I'm from Australia I've got this wedding cake to make there's been a power cut do you know anyone who's got a mix who could lend me this and so on oh yes I think I Betty Betty out on such and such farm owns that well I'm wondering would you mind giving her a call and asking whether she you know tell her I'll have to take it with me and I'll be back this way in about seven days time and I'll bring it back I promise but will it be all right if I borrowed it and people just Lindsay I don't know why people just help me they help me I just ask you know, I've got ingredients, I, you know, I obviously have my cake tins. And, and then as I went along the way, then I stopped at somebody's house and asked if they could use their oven. I cooked the cake in their oven, in their kitchen. People I've never met before in my life. And then they're like giving me lunch while the cake's in the oven, you know. So we're sitting down, having cups of tea, chatting. And then when the cakes are out the oven, I pack them up in the car, in their tins, and off I go again, you know, so I'm gradually moving. So at four o'clock that afternoon, I'm in a sort of Airbnb in the 
town where the wedding is going to be, just sort of doing butter, you know, so I made the cake along the way. And it was ready in time. It's ready in time. Mind you, I hadn't had my nap, but, but um, and it was beautiful. It had raspberries from the groom's grandmother's garden. It had lemons from, from the other partner's mother's garden, and they had been brought that to me, you know. So it, they were all made. It was all made from ingredients, even from the gardens of their loved ones that I'd arranged. You know, I'd made connections with relatives and asked if these ingredients could make their way to me on in New Zealand, and it happened. You know, I just thought, well, I've got this much time. This is where I need to be. This is what I've got to do. Just get on and do it. And I just ask people. I just ask people for help. Like the time Jillian was asked to make a cake for a couple in New York. I'll give you a little backstory. I recorded one of the conversations Jillian and I had a few years ago. Me at home in Halifax and Jillian in Brisbane. And it was during lockdown, and this podcast was on what would become a two-year hiatus. And I'm not sure what the plan was for the recording. Jillian said we were chasing kites to see where things would go. And look, when she said this line to me, this is what I've got to do. Just get on and do it. And I just asked people. I just asked people for help. I thought, this is a through line for Jillian. She's told me this before. It was a different wedding, a different season, a different country, but the attitude was the same. It's early summer, and Jillian has just arrived in New York City from Australia with her traveling wedding cake making kit. Her cake tins and a very long serrated knife and a handheld balloon whisk to take some of the grunt work in case she can't find an electric mixer to make the buttercream. She always has it with her. It's like her St. Christopher, she says. And at this point, she knows how many people she will be serving at the wedding, and that the venue is in Soho, and that she's rented an Airbnb on the eighth floor of a walk-up near the venue. But she doesn't know much else at this point. She's in adventure mode. She wants to inhale her surroundings. She wants to see what's growing. She wants to meet the couple. And she will take inspiration from that. The first thing that struck me when I arrived in New York was it was early summer and I could smell almost immediately, I could smell lilacs. I grew up in a country where we grew those and could smell those. I don't have that here, just too warm for them. And I smelt it and I thought, somehow lilacs has got to be in this cake because each year when it's their anniversary, this smell, you know, whether it was in all the flower store, but I'm just really a very sensory person you know I'm hearing sounds and I'm smelling smells and um I just thought yes those likes so I'd gone out and about around New York and in fact you know that was a tremendous thing too because I connected with people who linked me to farmers from upstate New York who grew wheat too so the actual flower the wheat the flower was freshly milled for me and anyway it was just wonderful but At five o'clock on the afternoon before the wedding the next day, I still needed a a mechanical whisk because it wasn't for the making of the cake, but for the buttercream. I really did need something mechanical, that sort of speed. So I thought, "Mm, why can I get a, a whisk or something? So I came down onto the street. There was the old building next door with the people's buzzers for their apartments so I just buzzed on one of the and just waited and then the intercom did pick up and it just was and I went hello hello someone there because the person didn't speak then a woman's voice came and said sort of like yeah what do you want sort of thing I said oh my name's Gillian I'm actually in the next building And I'm here in New York because I'm here to make a wedding cake. I'm from Australia, 
I'm here to make a wedding cake. And I just wonder, I really need a whisk. I wondered if you have one I could borrow. And it, it was just silence. And I thought, well, she hasn't hung up. I couldn't hear the phone thing go down. So I waited and I said, oh, I would only need it tonight. I can bring it back first thing in the morning. I'm, I'm just next door. Still sort of silence. And I thought, well, I haven't lost you yet, but she's probably thinking, what? So then she said, where are you from? And I thought, this is quite often because the accent is not obviously a New Yorker. <laughs> so, and I said, oh, I've come from Australia. And she said, oh, well, I've got a mixer. And I said, oh, that would be perfect. But somehow by now I've managed to ask her name and her name was Maggie. And so I said, oh, Maggie, if you could lend me that, it would be just wonderful. And I'm only next door and I'll promise, you know, it'd be safe and I'll just bring it back in the morning. Well, she said, I'm up on the tenth floor and it's rather, it's heavy. And she was basically saying, oh, it's too heavy for me to bring down ten flights. So I said, oh, Maggie, if you're happy to lend it to me, I'll make arrangements to get it down and carry it. And so she said, all right then. So I said, well, just hang on then. And I just turned around on the street and there was this man who was so big, he could have blocked out, you know, it was like an eclipse. I just said to him, oh, excuse me, sir. And it was, he just sort of took a step back away from me. I mean, he could have squashed me. I was by the height difference. I said, oh, excuse me, sir. I wonder if I could ask your assistant. There's a mixer up on the floor in here, this building, and I'm in this building. And I'm just, I really, it's a bit heavy. Is there any chance you could come and help carry it down and take it up to my building? And he just looked at me and he went, yeah, sure. He carried the mixer down for me and he carried it back up the other stairs. And I said, oh, thank you. I, I think it was Joe, but I'm not sure. But anyway, and that's why I mean, uh, wherever I asked people in New York, I had people in New York and they did find out that I was doing, offering my, their kitchens to me or this and that. It was so helpful. When I would first start asking people things, they would, it was a little bit, you know, reticent, but I think it was more because they were a bit taken aback by who is this <laughs> trying to work out that voice? Where's that voice from? But I didn't find anybody ungenerous or unkind or unhelpful. And then on the day of the wedding, when I got the cake to the place, the sort of wedding planner, he said to me, oh, are you the cake maker? And I'm like, yes, yes, yes. And he said, oh, we've heard all about it. Words gone out around New York, a baker in distress. <laughs> and I'm so mad you must have run and checked on me. Somehow they knew. <laughs> I've been in New York. I've been in China. I've been in Denmark, you know, all over the world. And I don't care what anybody says about people. People are fundamentally decent and they will help you out if you're in a pickle. you just got to ask, ask for help. I think there's a level of romanticism in all of us deep down and the fact that they can play a part in making this a happy day for someone. You know, we, we don't often in life get many opportunities to act in this way for complete strangers. You know, somebody might have been having just an ordinary mundane day and then I pop up and say, do you think you could help me make this happen for these people? And they're like, yes, yes. That was just going to be just an ordinary, same old predictable day and then it wasn't anymore. Perhaps because I'm, I'm not worried about saying to someone, I need your help to be vulnerable. Perhaps that's it. That doesn't worry me. And yes, I know it's in relation to a cake, and, but I can't help but feel that we're fundamentally decent and we, we do care about each other. Sometimes we make a very good job at not looking like we care for each other. And I think we're surrounded, you know, in our modern world with media and other things that always project bad images of each other and lots of fear and division. But my experience has been like Lindsay, when I made that cake in China, the man who allowed me to bake the cake in an oven in a little studio in his garden in the 
little place in Shanghai, I just messaged him from the other side of the world and just said, I just happened to know that because I saw a photo on social media that you've got this little studio in your garden. It's got like a Western style oven in it. I've got to come to China to make this wedding cake. Would there be any chance I could use your oven? It was just serendipity, but he, he had this little place in the garden. And just like that, we're on the other side of the world again, making a cake in a stranger's studio in a garden in Shanghai, because Jillian spotted his oven in a friend's photo on social media and asked for help. Postscript. It's the day before the recording, and I am writing this script. I could have written it a few days ago, or yesterday, but it needed to flow all at once on the day, when the words would feel the most fresh, when the ingredients would be ready to come together. And there was a moment at 80%, just like Marianne from the last episode experiences, when I wasn't sure if it was all going to come together. But then I put the kettle on, had a cup of tea, and pushed through it. And here we are, on an adventure. Thank you, Jillian, for sharing so much with me and with all of us. You've taught us to be prepared, to carry a toolkit, to always have extra buttercream, just like Marianne, and to ask for help. And you've also taught us to know that humans are all looking for love and connection, and to remember that when we're about to turn and face the wall. You can find Jillian at www.jillianbellcake.com.au or on Instagram at Jillian Bellcake. I just noticed there is a tab on her website that says Get in Touch and another tab that says Keep in Touch. Let's keep in touch. Tell me your cake stories, the disasters and the highs and the lows and the cake adventures, and maybe even the story of your wedding cake. You can share it all in my Substack. It's called Food Stories, and the link is in the show notes, or you can head to lindsaycameronwilson.substack.com or send me a note over on Instagram at The Food Podcast. This series is edited by Abby Circatella. Our theme song is One More Night by Nova Scotia singer-songwriter Jen Grant. Subscribe and rate and review the food podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson. Oh, and before we go, I can't forget Jillian's wedding day emergency cake kit. I would have an offset spatula, some skewers, have some secateurs, a flat smooth-bladed knife. I'd have some buttercream. You know, I would carry it in a cooler in the summer in Australia. And then I would have some things for cleaning up if I'd made a mess. It's only a simple few things, but they will help you, you know, make a bend, as it were. There'll always be a bump or something along the way. 